Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior. Welcome back. If you're new here, I just want to say thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention by lending us your ears. The only non-renewable resource you've got as well, and that is your time. Today's clean energy champion is also a technologist who loves to learn. And today we're going to hear all about how he, through the process of learning to build a house backwards, became fascinated with today's modern home. Jeff Farrell is the vice president of VPP, which is Virtual Power Plants and the CNI project business or commercial and industrial over at Sonnen Incorporated. Many of you are familiar with Sonnen. They are a global leader in power storage and power conversion for, in particular for home. And they're definitely one of the earliest companies to activate and to build virtual power plants. We get into how Jeff found himself at Sonnen, serendipitously how he was involved in some of the largest early projects here in America's for Sonnen as a purchaser, as a partner, a buyer of their products. I know that you're going to enjoy this conversation, so I look forward, as you do, to digging in to this conversation today. I hope that you're subscribed to the podcast, especially if you're new. That's the way that you'll ensure that you won't miss out on our twice-weekly content just like this. You can always check out more than 530 additional clean energy, founder stories, and startup advice at mysuncast.com. For now, let's settle in and get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Jeff, I have been looking forward to having a chance to chat with you, especially in particular because earlier this year, one of the conversations that I had was with a friend of ours, mutual friend, Mr. Jigger Shaw. And Jigger talks a lot about how VPP in particular, virtual power plants, for those who are unfamiliar, are a new opportunity for for solar to be sort of back in the, the zeitgeist in particular with regards to how funding is raised to expand the solar offering. And when I had it presented the opportunity to, to chat with you as vice president of VPP for Sonin, one of the core companies in the world offering this uh, as a service, I definitely knew I was going to jump at the chance. So I'm so glad that you took us up on joining here on Suncast. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, great to be here. And uh, I appreciate the invite to be here. You're such a an important and delightful voice in the space. It's a lot of fun to to be involved in your podcast to, after listening to them and uh, to, to get to contribute. And yeah. If Jigger thinks it's cool, then I think it's pretty cool too. <laughs> I'm keeping that. I'm keeping that sound bite. That's good. Well, I think that folks are going to really enjoy learning more about your career path, your trajectory, and some of the things that inadvertently probably you didn't expect you would become an expert in. And 
it all goes back to uh, a little boy who grew up in Vegas, if I'm not mistaken. Vegas, are you a gambler? You know, I tried it. I, I enjoy uh, I enjoy craps from time to time, but um, the crowds kind of get to me. You know, I got a little bit of social anxiety, so. Yeah, I always, I always wanted to be a poker player. Uh, one of my good buddies, Jim, is a very good poker player. And I, I have at times been to casinos and, and tried to learn blackjack and tried to learn in particular craps to your point. I think it's like probably the most fun game, but it's so intimidating and like anxiety yeah. inducing. <laughs> How did you say, so why, why did you grow up in Vegas? What was the story there? Well, I mean, I really didn't have much of a choice. I was just kind of born there. Both my parents were in the water heater industry of all, of all things. And there was a plant in Las Vegas that they worked for. And one thing led to another and I was born. And uh, we were there for about the first seven years of my life and then started to travel the West. But yeah, it's a, it's a fun place to have grown up. Yeah. Yeah. And like the other places that you are also from, it's changed a lot over the years. One of my clients is from, from Vegas, like Vegas, like actually, actually from Vegas. And it's fun to go and see like the completely different side of like what it is to live there. Uh, and I think that's true for so many places that are particularly tourist traps and tourist attractions. Mm -hmm. You had the luxury to move to another tourist attraction that in Southern California, we talked briefly about it. I'd love to hear, are there any sort of young, young Jeff stories where you really started to recognize this opportunity to harness the resources that are considered renewable or perpetual around us? That's a good one. Yeah, I guess I totally didn't realize at the time, but, you know, growing up in, in, in Southern California, we were right near uh, Dana Point, a great little beach, beach town. One of the hobbies that my mom uh, let me indulge in was sailing. Didn't know anything about it. You know, originally started sailing in these tiny little, you know, eight foot boats and moved up to lasers, moved up to catamarans, you know, sailed some bigger things. But I really, I really attached to the idea of harnessing nature. Again, I didn't realize at the time, so I won't claim that as an eight year old kid. But, you know, harnessing nature and being out on the water and, and the serenity of it. You know, you didn't have a motor running. You didn't have these things going on around you is just the sound of the wind and the water lapping against the boat. And, and then the skill of figuring out where you are and where the water's at and where the wind's at and, and going fast. Yeah. I kite surf now, so I totally get it. Uh, I also, while I cut my teeth surfing in Myrtle beach, South Carolina, of all places, uh, I grew up in the East coast surfer and idolized uh, Slater, Kelly Slater and, and those who uh, made mm -hmm. surfing look easy on knee high waves. And then I moved out uh, west to be with my best friend uh, for the summer and just kind of hang out. And he took me to Salt Creek pretty much every day until I could paddle into a wave. So I totally appreciate Dana Point and that part of the world. It is, uh, holds a special place in my heart. And what a cool story that, I mean, it's, it is often those things that we are able to reflect back on and realize how we began to really appreciate Mother Nature for the resources that she provides. Do you remember a point in time early in your career where you were very clear about what it is that you wanted to become or how you want to direct your life? Oh, probably seven different times. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, like, like, like any kid, you know, I went from one to be a policeman to a fireman to an astronaut. But yes, yes, stuntman, two broken arms, two separate times. So I think I indulged in that one. Uh, but yeah, you know, it led, it led me to college, uh, led me to aeronautics, uh, to being a pilot. And again, that, that was really appealing to me. I guess I have two questions. The first is what did you always think you would be? And then ended up not going down that path. Yeah. So 
in the middle of my life, I thought I was going to be a pilot. I was really interested in it. My aunt had gone to Embry-Riddle, had gone the military path. I was really interested in military aviation. Uh, I'm very interested in military history. This very fascinating. So I really thought that was the thing. So in 1999, moved to Prescott, Arizona to go to school, started flying, started spending a lot of money, realized that a mountain of debt was piling up, which is probably not foreign to a lot of people. And then 9-11 happened. So that was my sophomore year. And overnight, 70% of the world's pilots were furloughed. Nobody was flying. Nobody wanted to get near an airplane. And I realized very quickly that the several thousands of tens of or tens of thousands of dollars I had sunk into flying were probably not a great uh, investment at that point. So I shifted over to more of a scientific and and engineering focus at Embry-Riddle. I switched degrees halfway through school as well. And um, mine was actually quite the opposite. I've talked about it on the show before. I was I was an engineering major, mechanical engineering, and I switched to business, but I still didn't have a clear goal of like why I was switching to business. I just knew that the work pathways I saw in engineering weren't where I wanted to go. So when you switched over to this different focus, did you have a, an idea or a direction that you, were, that you felt like you were heading? I was always going to fly. I was always going to be a pilot. I just decided I wasn't going to fly for other people. Um, so I decided I wanted to be in a technical field, something that really lit me up, something that was analytical and scientific and team-oriented and be successful at that and go back, get my pilot's license, renew it and fly for myself. You know, And in that pursuit, what, what I realized was I really loved taking large challenges, world scale challenges, figuring out how to break those down, work with people, harness this you know, this group think you kind of kind of mentality and start to tackle these things that we as a society need to tackle. Where did the rubber meet the road for you? I mean, was your first job out of college something that that did that for you? Sort of you began to think about tackling this this world changing t- uh, opportunities and, and technology? No, um, <laughs> my first job out of college was was working for an IT firm. Um, I was actually working for the university in IT you know, like computers too, but learned that I like computers, but I didn't want to have a career in computers. So, um, so things aligned, ended that job and ended up needing a job to raise a young family. So like you do, you know, you want to take care of business. My stepdad at the time was a building inspector from the local cities and said, Hey man, I know you're looking for a job. I I've been inspecting out at this uh, job site and overheard them saying they were looking for an assistant superintendent. I'm like, what the heck's an assistant superintendent? I have no idea what that, you know, what is that? Looked up superintendent, spelled it wrong, Googled, spell checked me, figured out what that was all about. And I was like, yeah, I was like, dad, yeah, you, you taught me, um, you taught me a little bit of plumbing. You taught me some masonry over the years. You know, we, we did a few things, set me up. I'd love to talk to these guys and see what it's all about. I have no idea. So I show up one day to a single wide construction trailer sure people out there can relate. Met this guy named Justin. He's their senior superintendent uh, and and, and a blunt fellow. He's like, uh, what do you know about construction? I said, well, I I watched this old house. I think I can figure that out. He's like, okay. Uh, (laughs) He's like, well, you know, your your dad said good things about you. He said you you problem solve. You're pretty organized. He's like, let me show you around. We'll show you what what we do here and tell tell you what I want you to do. So he did. Show me around, 
walked me into a home that was ready to be turned over to a customer and said, basically, he basically said, think about all the things that go into this house, you know, and, and, and where we're at and the people that, that did these things. And in about an hour, a couple's going to show up at this home. They're going to walk through this home. They're going to show their kids around. They're going to pick their bedrooms. And we're going to hand them a set of keys. And this thing no longer is a house. It becomes someone's home. And that was super, super powerful to me in, in the moment because it's almost one of the most gratifying things you could do in life. You know, you spend months putting these imperfect things together, working as a team to take something from dirt to this system of systems, this thing of systems. And then when you turn the keys over to somebody, it transforms into something completely different. And that was just such a beautiful thing to me. And that really was where I started to fall in love with construction and subsequently made a career. How about that? All by the power of suggestion and observation, I might add. Uh, your father being open to seeing what's happening around him. What was the guy's name? And uh, what was the company name that, uh, that brought you into yeah, construction? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So at the time it was uh, Golden Heritage Homes, later rebranded a company called Suncor. And that gentleman was Justin Gardner, friends with him to today. He still builds a beautiful home. If I was going to have a home built and I wasn't going to build it myself, he would build that home for me. I mean, hands down, no questions, no questions about it. And what was so cool about it was on day one, he handed me a caulking gun and a box of rags. <laughs> he says, here's what you're going to do. Here's a list of homes. They're almost done. You're going to go in there and you're going to make them perfect. And when you go in there, they're going to look like disaster zones and you're going to make them perfect. And I spent months doing nothing but that final, final phase of construction, which is taking a total mess, caulking all the little gaps, cleaning things up, tightening screws, verting all your screws on light switches and all that, and, and making the home pre presentation ready, taking all the blue tape. You know, he'd go through two rolls of blue tape and... In, in no time. And then you had to go through and fix all that blue tape. And he literally taught me how to build a house completely backwards. It ends here. Here's what went into it. Here's what went into it. Here's what went into it. Here's the guy that did this. Here's the craftsman that did that. You get to observe it. And then ultimately you're going to go and perfect what they did. And over the course of four or five years, I got really good at building a house backwards. So in, in spending months just doing that final phase and learning to build the house backwards, it was years before I understood framing or concrete or underground plumbing for Pete's sake. I knew a fixture. Well, where does it come from? How does that go together? You know, I didn't know any of that stuff. And, and the beauty of it was you really understood the function of that system and, and, and all the selections that went into it and all the process that went into it. And then in learning backwards, what kind of fed that and what fed that and what fed that and what supported that and what became the, the structures that you then go vertical with was really profound to me because a lot of people walk up to a piece of dirt and a couple months later, there'll be a home there. And it's kind of taken for granted that, that this thing just popped up. And the reality is it really, it really takes hundreds of craftsmen, an incredible amount of planning and materials from around the world to take a piece of dirt to someone's home. And when you, when you learn it that way with that kind of intimacy and you understand that the same home can be built a hundred times, but the framers will frame it a hundred different ways, it's overwhelming. And it's like, one of these ways has to be the best way, right? And, and the reality is there, it isn't, you know? So you learn this, building this precise thing out of very imprecise things 
And the only way you do that is through craftsmanship. That's cool. You were at Suncor effectively straight out of college <clears throat> and it was a great learning experience and sort of battleground for you to get, to get tested on just the core understanding, just in the construction industry. Like many, many companies, Suncor didn't make it through the recession. Can you tell me how you eventually found your way to Mandalay, which really changed the course of your career? Yeah, that's a good one. I would have never, would have never guessed this would happen in my life, but yeah, Suncor, uh, Suncor went, went under in the recession. Um, we all got laid off. I did a number of jobs that I would probably just assume never do again. <laughs> and, and then at some point I saw a posting for a code enforcement officer and I was like, Oh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a policeman. I wonder if that's anything like being a policeman. That might be interesting. It's not, but I did it. I did it anyways. The, the money was good. So I went to work for the local government as a code enforcement officer. So I was that guy that was literally driving around neighborhoods saying, cut your weeds, get rid of that broken down car, get that trash out of your yard. I have a question for you then. How much yeah. of it is based on, as an enforcement officer, observation? I think you guys could be considered like some of the most hated people in town. How much of stuff that gets caught that is code violations is your trained observation versus being ratted out by neighbors? Whew. Well, that that's a policy question. Um, we got a <laughs> Come lot on, you're not working there anymore. Flag. Yeah, we, yeah, we got a lot of flack for being proactive. So this is this is one of those times in your life that being proactive is maybe a bad thing. <laughs> but then, yeah, you got a lot of customer complaints. Uh, you know, my neighbor hasn't picked up his his dog poo in the backyard in three weeks, and it smells awful. You know, things like that. So. We were hated. So you're this code enforcement guy in uh, whatever town in Arizona um, where you're yeah. living. And, uh, and you, I mean, are you, are you loving life or hating life right now? Yeah. So I'm not loving life. It's a job. It's again, I, I would not be a government employee for the rest of my life. I know that now. Uh, I've done a lot of jobs that I know I don't want to do again, mm-hmm. which is great. I think that's, I think that's such a good thing for people though. Exactly. And it's one of the things that I told my, one of my sons when he was growing up and he was thinking about going the military route. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, son, if you do go in the military, I guarantee you, you'll do a hundred jobs. You know, you never want to do again. Very valuable. Yeah. So one of the things that I got to do as a code enforcement officer was initial building applications to will the house fill in the lot? Does this meet code? Blah, 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 blah. And a lot of that, I got to interact with people up at the front counter. So one day I'm up at the front counter working and this guy comes in with a bunch of plans under his arms and I look up and kind of look back down and look up again. I'm like, oh, I know that guy. Yeah. So he sets the stuff down. He kind of looks up at me and he's like, Jeff, what are you doing? Holy cow. I haven't seen you in like six years. I said, Justin, holy cow. I haven't seen you in six years since Suncor. What have you been up to? Yeah. So Justin Gardner um, didn't stray from his path. He continued doing what he was put on this earth to do, building beautiful homes and it turns out he was working for this home builder. So we got to chatting over the couple of weeks that, you know, that we reconnected and he was coming in, dropping off plans. He was kind of telling me what they were doing. I was reviewing these plans. I'm like, these are kind of interesting houses, but, you know, nothing special. And he calls me up one day and he says, hey, man, how, ha- how happy are you with life right now? Same question you just asked me. <laughs> I said, what do you mean, man? I said, uh, you know, things are good. My kids are good. Everyone's healthy. He's like. He's like, well, I'm doing this thing. You know, I know you've seen the plans, but we need some help. And the owner of the company is trying to do something kind of weird. And when he brought it up to me, your name came to mind. I'm like, okay, tell me, tell me more. 
So a guy named Dave Everson, owner of Mandalay Homes, was building homes up in Prescott, Arizona, and he had a very specific mission. And it turns out it's a really beautiful mission. Second time in my life, I had no idea what I was walking into, and it turns out to be so profound. So Dave got turned on to technology by some crazy kook that was like, hey, do this cool thing, and then you know, left them hanging. So Dave decided that his mission in life was to build homes that were healthier, more energy efficient, were more sustainable, and were some of the most durable things on the planet. He hated that we built homes like we build razors today, that they're just disposable. You know, you know just, just hates it. So he was looking for a nerd, raising my hand. Uh, he was looking for a nerd to come over and help him wrangle all these technologies and bring all these things together and produce a home that was fundamentally better. That sounds like a, a, a geek-tastic job. I have to imagine your engineering background and Embry-Riddle came in handy there. It did. It did. So that was kind of, that was kind of where it came from. You know, Justin remembered that I went to school there and, you know, he sat me down in front of Dave. Dave asked me about everything about myself, told me what he was doing, you know, used a phrase that I still use today. He's like, so, so look, I think insulation's sexy. And I thought about it for a second and I said, um, you might be right. And it turns out insulation is sexy because of what it does and the way it's applied and, and it just, it's, 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 it's place in the world. It's a really sexy thing that takes this assembly that is just awful. It makes it livable. <laughs> so it's a joke. You know, it's a joke to this day for myself, you know, insulation, sexy. And a lot of people kind of look at me funny and say, Meh. it's also the underwear of the house. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's another one. Yeah. It keeps you from seeing the bones. That's really, that's really interesting. I know that Dave had an, an immense amount of influence on who you have become as a person. One of the things that kind of blows me away is, you know, you've had, you had this tremendous experience at Suncor. You wandered out into the wilderness trying to find, uh, find your way through the recession like many, many did. And this serendipitous re-engagement with Justin brought you back to the fold of construction. But to go from, I know nothing about construction to chief technology officer at one of the most forward thinking home builders and fastest growing home builders in the Southwest is a, it's a step too far in <laughs> a bit of like me to stretch my imagination and understand it. Walk me through the, the timeline of you joining Mandalay and then why Dave ultimately promoted you to chief technology officer for the, for the, for a home builder. Yeah. I mean, I guess uh, the phrase imposter syndrome, some comes to mind a little bit which turns out isn't a bad thing, but you know, yeah, yeah. You know, I love on the job training and Dave, I mean, God bless Dave. Um, such a great teacher. So, you know, we just, we, we started small when I joined the company, we, we closed 38 homes that year, you know, we were small. So we had a lot of room to build and iterate and innovate. And, and he gave me a lot of runway to go talk to people and conference and be out in the world. I met Sam Rashkin that way you know, met some really great people in, in the world that were talking about these disparate technologies. You know, everybody was an expert. I'm an HVAC guy. I'm an insulation guy. I've got this paint that has nanotechnology in it, but nobody was really bringing it together. And Dave gave me a forum and a lab to go out and just throw things together and see what happened. And I don't think that in the majority of the building world, that you really have that freedom, that you really have that space to go and do that because you're hyper-focused on closing, 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 margin, margin, margin. And Dave gave me the ability to kind of get outside of that business box 
and and innovate a model that he then took to the market and 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 did really great things with. At what point did it become clear to you that the the model for residential consumer energy consumption was changing the way that the houses were being built, the way the homes are being used. Could you talk about the transformation you were seeing from a consumer demand perspective or even from a Mandalay Homes being way out in front of the market, trying to educate consumers on what was possible and where the market was going? Yeah, that was a tough journey. Um, You know, we spent a lot of time figuring out how to commercialize these things. You know, I I, I don't say this flippantly, but it's in the sound flippant, so I apologize. Anybody could go out there and build a multi-million dollar ultra sustainable, ultra energy efficient home. It's just money at that point. But the way the way you make these technologies accessible is to push and drive and say, I need to take this thing off the shelf and do it differently and use it differently. I need to take this partnership with XYZ HVAC manufacturer and see how we help them evolve their product and help them develop a market where this is accessible to everybody. So that was really the mission at Mandalay was to not just do it, but to do it in a truly sustainable way, not in the traditional sense of the word sustainable, but in a business traditional, in a business sense rather. How could we build a market rate home that competes with everything else on the market, but this home is better? And that's easy, but then you got to sell the dang thing. So then it became, then, then the mission became, how do we message this really technical air changes per hour or, you know, HEPA filtration, MERV ratings, or you just these, these things that in the industry we know, but to a homeowner, they're like, does it come with a third bedroom? You know, that that's the focus. And then, and then Dave and I also had this debate and I ended up winning. It's one of the few debates I think I ended up winning, but it was about optionality. So if you have solar and a battery as an option on your option list, And then right next to it, you have group four granite. Nine times out of 10, they're going to pick the group four granite. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, they deserve their group four granite. But how do you drive mass adoption forward? And how do you drive the prices of these types of things forward if it's not mass adoption? So Dave agreed. He said, you're right. We will make things like solar and increased insulation and batteries non-standard if you can figure out how to pay for it. Circle what year? This was... 16, 17. Okay. We spent a good three or four years really perfecting the envelope of the home, the building materials of the home, driving the HERS rating as low as we could as a base asset. And it was really around 2017 where we were like, okay, we've kind of maxed out technology. Let's see what renewables have to offer in this space. In the 2017 timeframe, as you started thinking about where does renewables come in? What is it that we can actually control, innovate around, build partnerships around? Walk me through the, the, from your side, the CTO of the company now, the technology selection process that led you to Sonnen, it led to um, you guys at the um, the EEBA conference in Atlanta in 2017, announcing this partnership and the work that you were doing with, uh, it was getting recognition from everyone, from Discovery Home to the DOE. Yeah, it was exciting times. So Dave and I knew from the start that we didn't just want to do solar. It didn't make sense in Arizona. The utilities here in Arizona had already eliminated net metering. We hadn't had net metering in Arizona since probably 2015. I probably have to double check that number. But they, they had already started, you know, desubsidizing through through the, the eliminations of net metering. So we knew solar alone didn't make sense because the value you're going get, to get out of exported solar 
would never overcome your cost to implement it in the first place. So we knew that something more was needed. What was that something more? Dave thought I had a plan. I had no idea. I love that you're so honest about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah of course. I mean, again, I, I would just be lying to myself. But So we knew there was something more. I knew... I thought it was something around maybe smart load control. I thought community solar was cool. I thought the idea of or, um, right, like a central plant that you could put out on the uh, development. Yeah, microgrids. That's the word. Jesus, I deal with them every day. I can't remember the word. You know, I thought that was cool, but didn't totally understand the landscape and the products that were out there that supported it. So I ended up going to a builder show, and this crazy guy gets up on the stage at lunchtime trying to sell me something. I'm like, oh, another vendor trying to sell me something. What's this all about? He says, ah, my name is Blake Riquetta. I'm vice president of sales for Sonnen Inc. I'm like, what's a Sonnen? And for the next 20 minutes, he told us what a Sonnen was. And he literally blew my mind right there in the middle of that, of that ballroom. And when the lunch was over, I, I ran. I kid you not. I ran to the show hall where all the vendors were. And I'm looking for Sonnen. I'm looking for Sonnen. Where the heck is Sonnen? I'm looking all over. And I finally see him. And, and this Blake guy stand there talking with another guy. And I'm like antsy, like standing there going, can you guys shut up, man? I need to talk to this guy. Can you? <laughs> so, so this other guy I was talking to him. I was like, oh, thanks for your time. Leaves. And I tell Blake what, what I'm all about and where I came from and what we're doing. And he grabs a chair and he sits down. And he's like, I think we need to clear the afternoon and talk about what you guys got going on. And it probably was two weeks later. He was out in Arizona walking sites with Dave and I talking about how Sonnen could help us revolutionize the market and support all these things that we had built and, and support solar and that we needed to go to the utility and tell them what we were all about and get a special rate plan and figure out how we harness electrons better and just all these super high level ideas. And unlike a lot of vendors that I've dealt with in my professional life, Blake stuck with us and he helped us knock down barriers and he helped us understand the obstacles that were out there and how these things could interact. And it led to what became the first single name spec in the country for a battery. So yeah, exactly. What does that mean? <laughs> Blake, Blake says to everybody, like it means something too. And they're like, what does that mean? You, you know, in the building industry, we we're very commodity driven. A two by four is a two by four. A shingles, a shingle, a fixture is a fixture. Glass is glass. You don't do a lot of, you know, we're Mandalay homes and we build with X, you know, whatever it is, you know, it just, it just doesn't happen in the building industry a lot. But what Dave decided to do is he decided to hitch his horse to that cart and said, Sonnen can take us places. We can drive a new market with Sonnen at its heart. And what we want to do is we want to go to the press. We want to tell the world that Sonnen home, that Sonnen that Mandalay homes have Sonnen in them. And that is the spec that we're going to move forward with. And until until that time, according to Blake and according to Sonnen, that that had never happened. And I and I would argue it still happens today. You know, builders are putting batteries in, but depending on the winds, it'll be this battery or that battery or this thing or that thing. Be committed to a spec. In a really powerful way. It happens in the solar industry all the time. The king of that from a manufacturer branding perspective in the solar industry is SunPower, right? Creating their dealer network which was super, super, super strong for years. I think yeah, in some absolutely. ways remains uh, so as um, Maxion, the brand they have now, but that totally resonates. So did you look at any other products? Um, you know, you mentioned being at this conference and being impressed with what Sonnen was working on. And uh, it seems like you went really deep down that path, but 
as a technologist and as a CTO, surely you looked at kind of looked around at other options. Well, yeah, we tried to. There was a company that I called. Um, I won't name them. It starts with a T. I'm still waiting for them to call me back. You and many others. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Um, so we, we looked at some other technologies, but but where it led, I guess the best way to say it is the reason we came right back to Sonin and we settled on Sonin very quickly was because of their software. It had little to do with their battery, although it is the best battery in the industry. I'm sorry, I'm a little biased, but you know it is the best battery in the industry. But it didn't have anything to do with the battery itself, really. What it had everything to do with was how you control batteries and how you look at a community and decide what you can do with that community. And you make it larger than the sum of its parts. And that's something that Sonin does really well that I was completely ignorant to. But when I met Blake in 2017, they had been doing it in Europe for two or three years already. The U.S. had no idea. Turns out today we call this little thing a virtual power plant. Pretty cool. So, but that, that was our goal. What Dave and I wanted to do was we wanted to create a community of homes, a community of people, and allow them to interact with each other in really special ways. And if we built this home that was super energy efficient, super healthy, how could we help these homeowners interact with each other and interact with the world in a really special way? You know, they, they had a unique advantage over that house across the street. And Sonin offered that. So since you were on the consumer side, you had to convince homeowners as an entity that this was a more valuable solution for them. <laughs> the Jasper community you guys did was among the first in the nation to incorporate batteries the way you did. It was 2,900 homes. Another community, uh, I believe, just outside Salt Lake, which I'm not sure with, was Myth, Myth Mandalay, but I, I know that it was with Sonin, was the first large-scale utility-controlled residential virtual power plant in the USA. Speak to the consumer out there and the, the consumer in me, or, or even the skeptic who would say, but doesn't this cost more? Why, why should I care about having the so-called smart, smart home? Or, or isn't smart, like, are we making them too smart? Help, help me kind of with some of the language that you had started to incorporate into your value proposition as Mandalay once you incorporated the specific energy-related elements that Sonin helped bring to the table? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is, and if, if, if Dave's ever watching or listening to this podcast, he'll, uh, he'll laugh. <laughs> you know, one of his, one of his famous, famous Dave-isms is, I don't want to ask their permission. So it, it, it had to be unobjectionable. You had to bring it to them in such a way that you weren't asking them to choose. You weren't alienating them. You weren't niching out the home you were only providing benefit. And in deciding what benefit you were providing, you had, to you had to decide what customer you were facing. Are you as a customer interested in saving money? Are you as a customer interested in energy independence? Are you as a customer interested in saving the world? Are you as a customer not interested in all? You know, and three of those four buyers, you can, you can hook if you don't put obstacles in their way. You can say, look, I've built a home that saves you money. Oh, cool. I love that. I love that saves me money. I've built you a home that keeps you independent from changes in energy policy. You will not be called by APS or PG&E or Duke Energy or whomever it is next month and said, your energy bills are going up 30% and you have no say in the matter. Cool. I like that too. And then, and then of course, then you have the, the sustainability aspects of it. So, so really the whole marketing campaign was circled around not asking permission, making this a standard feature, just like a roof, just like a door 
You didn't ask people the option. Do you want a front door on your home? It'll be drafty without it. You know, you know, so we we just we we came at that approach of just making it standard, paying for it, utilizing the tax code and the energy code really smartly to help buy down the cost of that technology, and then and then sourcing things smartly. So we did things like buying containers of panels that are on at a time on our own. Then we formed our own solar team that would go and install those panels. So we were fundamentally installing solar on these homes for 50% of the cost that you would if you had hired a solar contractor to come in and do it. And then we cut a deal with our electrician to do all the high voltage connections and wire this in, taught them how to do it and gave them a value proposition in the market and really drove the cost of applying that technology down. In, in your experience, then, given what you just said, is there really just 50% of fat in the deals right now? You know, you're able to cut 50% out. Obviously, you're talking at scale, but what percentage of that is just fat in the deal? I'm going to guess it's 26% conveniently. Yeah, yeah. I, I understand the sentiments. It's really about maximizing value. So if I have people on my staff that I'm already paying insurance for, already putting them in work trucks, already paying workers comp, they're out there sweeping streets or picking up nails or spraying insulation or something. What else can I teach them to do? And if I can maximize their day and teach them to do these different things and do it the way I want it done, there's a, there's a boatload of savings in that. When you hire a solar contractor, they are an expert in that space, but they have their own trucks. They have their own insurance. They have their own workers comp. They have their own labor. They have to roll out there. They have to pay for gas. They have to pay overhead. So there are costs associated with that. And because they're a specialist, they're not as nimble as a builder could be at scale, you know, again, I think scale is probably the key word there to be able to do what we were doing as a builder. Hey, Sunshine, cloud's got you down. It doesn't have to be that way. Leading solar enterprises around the world are making the most of their investments in Sunshine with Solar Anywhere, the data and intelligence service from Clean Power Research. Whether you're designing or operating solar assets, Solar Anywhere helps you reduce project risk and improve performance benchmarking. Learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash solar anywhere. Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. It's built in DC to DC coupling combined with other features like higher Energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Hey family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast, moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations, our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia, to green hydrogen, to crypto, and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Well, Lest folks think that you were in some way laid off because of the pandemic, 
circa January 2020, you, and I presume this is sort of leading into the end of 2019, you transitioned over to actually working with the team at Sonin, taking uh, a position under Blake, uh, who is now the head of the Americas, and as, as senior director of their virtual power plant design. Talk about that move and why it represented the, next, the right next step in your career. It was a really hard move. There's so many things that I, that I love about Dave and so many things that he taught me and so many things that I loved about the construction industry. I was really scared to leave Mandalay Homes for all the things that we built and all the accomplishments and all the things we wanted to continue to accomplish. There were some things changing in the company, some things changing in my life. And, and I had a moment of insanity where I said, you know, I haven't never, I've never traditionally been a sales guy. My dad was a brilliant salesman, but I've never been a sales guy. Maybe I should try that. <laughs> and I still don't tout myself as a sales guy today. Like I sit in a room with people and I'm like, look, I'm not here to sell you anything. I'm here to tell you how things work. And if you want to buy it, cool. If not, I'll cry a little bit later and then we'll be cool. You know, so I'm still not a sales guy. You know, I just I'm just not. But this opportunity really came up where I could kind of expand my horizon and take what I had learned, take what Dave taught me, what he allowed me to in, in, indulge in over the years and try to make a bigger impact. You know, I, I realized I could build 100,000 homes in my lifetime working for Mandalay Homes or some other builder. And it's still a drop in the ocean compared to all of the homes on the planet. You know, it's important, but it's still just a drop. And I really wanted to see if there was something more that I could do, that I could take my skills and my passion and move to a larger stage where I could affect more people and influence more people and start to turn that drop into a cup, into a, a gallon, into, you know, a waterfall, into, you know, into a, this, this body of water and start to address what we really need to address in this world, which is existing stock. You know, we will never build enough new homes to overcome that 1950, 1970 home that is just sucking electricity out of the grid and doing terrible, terrible things for our society. And I really wanted an opportunity to start to address that. How? Well, I mean, idealistically, I would be able to influence builders and remodelers to make those assets better. Use some sexy insulation, use some cool windows, use some weather stripping, you know, do some things that, that, that make that home not so leaky and make it not such a draining asset on the grid. And I quickly realized that that was like pushing a ball up the hill. It's a tough prospect. So instead at Sonin, where I really got to shift my focus was to look at the energy grid and say, where are the problems really being generated? And it's not any one thing. It's not that there's a lot of solar and that we're pushing a lot of solar into the grid and then we're demanding a lot back. It's that fundamentally, especially in America, our home's loads have become very peaky. We have a lot of things in our home that demand electricity and they demand electricity in different ways. And some of these things demand a lot of it really quick. So it spikes and it spikes and it spikes, especially as we go to heat pumps, especially as we go to electric cooking and these other things that were traditionally gas even even fireplaces, you know, we go to electric fireplaces instead of gas. So the problem that we see in a lot of the grids today is that loads have become very peaky and it's very difficult to match supply to load. In the past, this is much more easy. You could predict it. People come home at five, they turn lights on, 
They turn them off around 10. They go to bed. By the way, those loads were a lot bigger, so you could predict them a lot better because your swings were bigger. And you could spin up gas power plants, coal power plants to match that much easier. Today, it's not easy at all. So the approach that, that we've taken at Sonin, the way that we work with our partners is to say, we no longer want to try and figure out how to match supply to load. What we want to do is install an asset that helps you smooth your load and be an asset where you can actually match your load to supply. And again, solar does so many wonderful things. Wind does so many wonderful things. They're both very peaky. When the sun is shining, you're generating a bunch. When the wind is blowing, you're generating a bunch. If the wind dies down, you lose all that. When a cloud rolls over a community, you lose all that. So by coupling that with energy storage, smart energy storage, you now give this pond, if you will, to store electrons in and then to be able to look out to the grid and say, what's needed? What do I need to do? Do you need me to ramp up production? Do you need me to scale back production? What needs to happen? And we actually, with the, with the advent of VPPs, have the, for the first time in society, have the ability to synchronize these things. And that's really exciting to me. So for the uninitiated, you just spoke into more detail the, for, for folks who under, kind of understand what's going on. They'll immediately kind of understand that you are painting the picture where virtual electrons for sale exists. One of the things that's fascinating about Sonin is the history with respect to virtual power plants. I'd like to give an opportunity here for two things. Uh, for, for those who maybe are completely, this is the first time they've really ever heard of Sonin, uh, which itself now is like, it's a really, uh, you know, longstanding company in the space and, and is a part officially, you all, you all are part of Shell uh, now, but can you talk a bit about how a virtual power plant works um, and the history specific to Sonnen all the way back to Germany of being an early pioneer in testing the, the reality and like the needs, the critical sort of failure points of virtual power plants. Can we talk a bit about that? Absolutely. Yeah. So a virtual power plant really is software. Uh, you know, that that's it. It's, it's the ability to communicate with a set of assets and swarm control them to do whatever it is that you want them to do. In this case, because it's a power plant, what you're telling them to do is you're telling them to absorb or supply energy at a certain power rate and to be able to control that with very, very fine control, but at aggregation. You know, again, you, you could do with one battery, no problem. Individual homes have been doing this for years where the home says, you're generating 500 watts of load. I can offset 500 watts of load. Batteries have been doing it for a decade. It's old news. To be able to take 5,000 of those batteries and say, here's what the grid needs. Virtual power plant software tells these batteries, you go do this, you go do this, you go do this, you go do this. You go supply this product, you go supply this product, and we can meet the grid's needs and we can monetize that. That's what a virtual power plant is. It is fundamentally taking a bunch of small assets aggregating them up, being able to communicate with them very, very quickly and asking them to supply products to the energy market. I don't think that's the definition you get a lot. Yeah. When did this really start to become a thing? When and where? Yeah. So this started in Germany. So Sonnen is a true pioneer of this technology. Germany after World War II did an amazing job rebuilding their electrical infrastructure. They have one of the best electric grids on the planet. And then they started introducing solar, like a lot. And what they started to find through these subsidies and through this mass adoption 
was that they were creating instability throughout the country. And, and it was really unique in Europe because you go from these regions where there's a lot of sun, you go towards the North Sea where there's a lot of cloud cover, but a lot of wind. And there's a mix of, of renewables that are really kind of coming into the grid. You've got offshore wind in the North Sea. You've got solar down in the South. You've got some biofuel things going on. And they started to see a lot of instability. So Sonin came along, um, really started about 2008, was formed as a company in 2010 by our original founders, Christoph Ostermann and Torsten Stiefenhofer, um, started building batteries. Yeah, great, great names. Yep, great German, great German guys. Started battering, building batteries in Torsten's garage. And Christoph would literally throw it in the trunk of his car, start going door to door, knock on people's doors and say, I've got this battery in my, I won't do the accent. I've got this battery in the trunk of my car. Here's what it does. Here's the benefit. Do you want one? Yeah. Was this like, I see that you have solar on your house or it didn't matter? It, no, it didn't matter. It didn't matter because in Europe, they weren't tied to the certain ITC, you know, ITC or IRS rules that we have here in the U.S. It was really just about the electric grid. And because they had opened up, I presume, because they know, had these regulations or the policies around feed-in tariffs. Germany was the first to really open up feed-in tariffs. Yep, they yep. allowed homeowners, consumers to participate in the feed-in tariffs as well, not just not just utility-scale players who you know, signed up for a license or whatever. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So in the beginning, it was just about having a battery. It was a feel-good thing. A lot of affluent people getting them. You know, a famous Christophism was, you know, a customer would say, you know, when will this battery pay me back? And he would go, eh, I don't know, 100,000 years? You know, you know they, they literally had no, 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 no buyback or no payback in the, in the beginning there. But where the company was formed, it was formed to be a grid-tied stationary battery from day one. We were lithium iron phosphate technology from day one for this purpose. Yep, from the beginning, from the beginning. And Christoph and Torsten understood that the future really wasn't controlling those batteries. That was the end game. They knew it from 2010. Brilliant guys, brilliant guys. They, they understood it. They understood that they could get batteries in people's homes and then they could figure out how to control them and then they could figure out how to sell that control. There's a business model there. And that's what they figured out in Europe. And, and in Europe today, Sonin acts just like a, a utility. Um, people can sign up for a Sonin utility plan they can use their Sonin battery with or without renewables, and they act as part of the Sonin community in Europe to balance the grid, to harness cheap energy, to discharge energy when prices go up. And it all works in their benefit to help them have the lowest utility bills that they possibly can have. Is it true that the first virtual power plant town, I think like first town to, get, to have a virtual power plant in, is in Germany and it's a Sonin product? It is. Yep. So our, our, our founding was in a small village called Wilpertsried. Mm. I don't think I pronounced it exactly right. I still That's in Bavaria, out. right? I think that the Solar Coaster guys did a show yeah. there. They like went and visited that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, uh, it is in Bavaria. There are more cows than there are villagers. But if you look it up, it is, it is called the, the Sonin Energy, Energy Village. Uh, and, and it literally produces about seven times as much energy as the villagers use. And this is one of the primary revenue streams for the village. That's the future right there. It's a pretty cool place. It is. It That's is. cool. We need to go to Wilpa Street and, uh, and check that out. You mentioned LiPo, lithium iron phosphate. Uh, we've talked a bit at length at, about it here on the show and the, and the safety and, and uh, sort of the economics of, of LiPo, how most folks are realizing it's, uh, it's the safest uh, architecture. Is it true that 
Sonnen has kind of a, a graph showing the life cycle of all of the, the chemistries and longevities that you've tested. What can you share about kind of the testing uh, and R&D uh, within Sonnen around chemistry and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, that's, it's, it's very important. So even within the, the lithium iron phosphate battery chemistry family, you can have wildly different kind of um, interactions, I guess is the best word for it. So, so again, from day one, Christoph and Torsten's goal was to build an extremely long-lasting safe battery. They wanted that once you put this battery in the home, that people didn't have to worry about it for a decade, 20 years. That just that was their expectation. And if you think about it, we're the same way. You, you put a roof on your house, you don't expect to mess with it for 20 years. You put a dryer in your laundry room, you expect that thing to work for a decade. You don't change out a home battery like you do a car, you know, especially me. I don't keep a car for like more than a year. It's terrible for finances, but it is what it is. You know, so, so you have different expectations. And they understood that when it comes to a home, the expectation was, I'm going to put this thing in. I don't want to mess with it. I just want it to show up. I just want it to work. So the basis of that was lithium iron phosphate. It's not as energy dense as some of the other technologies. It's heavier. It's bigger. But for a home, does that really matter? You're not moving it around. You're, you're not asking it to do zero to 60 in 2.2 seconds. You're asking it to show up and you're asking it to be there for 10 years, 15 years and not give you any trouble. So that was a huge focus from the beginning. And, and we are on our fourth, fourth generation of lithium iron phosphate uh, chemistry currently, and they just keep getting better. Before we move on to kind of where we're at current day, I had a question around, I believe there was a case study that you guys did using your network in Europe to transition excess capacity from wind, not even solar, but from wind down through Europe without needing to use high tension wires. Do you, are you familiar with that project? Tangentially, I don't think I could speak to it a lot, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting in that you can use local distribution systems Import, hold, export, hold. And in the way that you do that, you can use smaller wires through a kind of more of a spider web as opposed to gigantic wires and just like cramming the electrons from one place to another. Absolutely. So what boggles my mind is the regulatory and compliance issues and hurdles required to be able to do that, often inter-utility, I would presume. And I know that that, that while it being able to manage a town, which is one, uh, one utility, is is possible like it blows my mind to think about the fact that we could actually leverage existing infrastructure without the need to build new infrastructure it must require not just software but this phenomenal level of cost accounting how long since we've been able to actually model that and and convince utilities that it's possible and that they could participate in that way it's been possible to to model that and show it for you know a good decade there are still utilities today that don't believe the math is true. There's some old school procurement guys that say, I must buy massive amounts of power. And if you're not buying massive amounts of power for me, we go bankrupt. So that is a major obstacle. Um, there are some utilities out there that are seeing the light, that are understanding the model can be different, that are understanding that not all electrons are created equal, and that maybe this electron, they have to create at 5 p.m. at peak it would actually be cheaper if they never had to create it in the first place. Well, let's talk about your role at Sonnen. What compelled you to leave Mandalay and go there and, and stand up or sort of begin to run, at least not stand up, but obviously to begin to run and, and ultimately be responsible for the virtual power plant division. 
for Sonnet. Can you tell me about your role? What exactly do you do? Like, what are you responsible for? How does your organization depend on you? And then I'll unpack a little bit more where you see virtual power plants going, like what the future looks like. So it actually started when I was at Mandalay. We had started implementing Sonnen batteries standard on all of our homes. And Sonnen had this other customer in Utah that was building an all-electric community and wanted to incorporate solar and Sonnen batteries into this community. And they had a relationship with the local utility um, in Utah. It's called Rocky Mountain Power to be able to implement this pilot project where it would be all electric, solar, controlled by Sonnen batteries, and Sonnen's VPP software platform. Is this the Solel project, Solel Lofts? Yep. So this is Soleil Lofts, yep, in, in Harriman, Utah. Yeah, a lot of folks who uh, went to um, the last RE Plus that we had before, you know, the most recent one, will remember that you guys actually, like, took people there. That's why I was asking. I, I felt like I'd, I recognized the place, the direction you were going. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll be there again. I'm actually really excited that we get to go back to RE Plus and... Appreciate that you guys are such a great sponsor of that wonderful event. So hopefully get to connect while we're there. But yeah, so so Rocky Mountain Power wanted to prove that you could sell less power to a customer and make more money. And they wanted to prove that you could do that through showing the value of individual kilowatt hours, depending on when they're harvested and how they're harvested and how you can control their movements. And that's essentially what we do at Soleil Lofts even to today. So the the idea was if you had a grouping of batteries that you could control their load, essentially, that's what they're really interested in. If you could control their load and and you weren't just subjected to a bunch of solar export and then a ramp up in the evening and then having to use your traditional assets to support a community like this, but instead you had support assets within the community that the utility could directly control that those kilowatt hours and that you're that you're using in the community were fundamentally cheaper cradle to grave. And and that was the thesis was solar, all electric battery, battery control. Could we manage solar lofts in such a way that our energy costs to supply and maintain that community are fundamentally cheaper than the way we, we model it for every other rate payer in the state of, of Utah. That's the thesis. And you were saying that this is essentially how, what brought you into to Sonnen, which obviously was developed uh, with a d- different developer, not, yeah. not Mandalay. That's right. Yeah. So, so Blake asked if we could give some tips and tricks, you know, kind of show them some, some things that we had learned, help them avoid some pitfalls or whatever. So a couple of folks from, from Wasatch came out to Arizona. We showed them our homes, went through some of our technologies, and they ended up implementing a bunch of them at Sully Lofts, which is awesome because again, this is apartment community, but they have really great circulation, really great HVAC, really great air quality, really great windows. It's a great place to live. And it has a soda battery in the living room, which is rad. In the living room, like people like butt their couch up to it and it's a member of their family. So it looks a lot like those wall heat um, generators that we all have in our houses in, in Northern California, where it's like a gas radiator design. It kind of looks like that. That's kind of why it comes to my mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I would I would argue to say that of all the manufacturers out there, we're probably number one or number two, depending on the year in design of the cabinet. You know, the, the Sony cabinet is very, very European in nature, clean, sleek line lines, you know, white for our eco links, uh, white for our eco, black for our eco links. Just really, really sexy. So what exactly then 
did Blake ask you to come on to do? And, and what now as yeah. the head of the business unit for, unit for a virtual power plant, have you begun to sort of own and are like the organization really depends on you in terms of the business plan? Yeah. So I think what Blake wanted me to do when I came over to Sonin was to expand the business. You know, you're never going to make a business model selling 622 batteries to one apartment complex. But how do you harness what we learned there and what we did there? Take it across the country, open up new markets, talk with utilities, talk with builders, talk with CCAs and help them understand that if you can harness these electrons and understand where they came from and what their value was, that you can balance your books better and that you can actually have a a fundamentally better business selling cleaner, greener electrons and selling fewer of them. So that was, that. that's the mission. That's really the mission. So the first, you know, the first job was Utah. Um, we took what we took, what was just solely lofts and it's now expanded into what Rocky mountain park power calls Watsmart. And Watsmart is an incentive program where you can get solar and a battery from a local solar contractor and Rocky mountain power will pay you a sizable incentive for installing that battery and giving Rocky Mountain Power the ability to control that battery on your behalf. How fundamentally different, like if I'm thinking about um, progress in Duke here in North Carolina or Santee Cooper in South Carolina, Southern Company, how different is this for them to wrap their heads around as a utility from just traditional demand response where they put a unit on that literally turns your air conditioner off in the summer when, when peak loads spike? Yeah, it's, it's, it's fundamentally different because th- there's two aspects to it. So personally speaking, this Jeff speaking, not on behalf of Sonin, <laughs> I hate thermostat programs. I hate them. I just, again, back, back to what Dave taught me. I don't want to ask people's permission. I don't want to mess with their lives. I don't want to expose myself to a situation where the consumer says, yeah, this was a good idea at the time, but I'm uncomfortable. So I'm going to go override it. And that's what thermostat programs are starting to see is they don't see the efficacy that they thought they were going to see when they kind of modeled these out originally, because ultimately what happens is if a homeowner comes home and that house is uncomfortable, they're going to go turn up or down the thermostat to make themselves comfortable. And it's not that they're being malicious, they're being uncomfortable. And they probably forgot that they signed up for that program in the first place. They just want to be comfortable. But in doing that, you start to undermine the program. And unfortunately, Those types of programs don't give you the types of results you're really looking for. Whereas if you talk about a battery program, we're simply getting in front of all these loads. We're saying, customer, live your life the way you live your life. Bake a cake at five o'clock in the evening. Crank your AC to 68. Do do whatever you want to do. If your solar and battery have been sized and engineered properly, all we're going to do is manage the energy out in front of what you're doing. You're never going to know we're doing anything. And you're actually going to give better efficacy to any program or to the utility for having done it that way than using a program that is behavior dependent. Yeah. Fascinating. What are most people in your line of work? Well, first of all, as the head of business unit, who are you most engaging with and trying to educate or bring along the the learning curve? Yeah, it's three prongs. Um, there's really kind of three three legs to the stool. So you know, the, the first kind of business model you can tackle would be something like Rocky Mountain Power. This is a traditional, vertically integrated, state utility commission empowered entity that owns generation, transmission, distribution, the customers, they own everything. 
And that's a really cool model because you can make big swipes at it and you can fundamentally reshape an entire region when you can get in the door and you can help those types of utilities shift the way they do business. And it, and it, and it, and it has a lot of traction. It can have a lot of traction. It's also a long process. You know, utilities literally plan their supply for decades. So to, to come in and try and ask them to be nimble is very, very difficult. And it really messes with their long-term planning. So it's a very particular model. Um, I think most utilities fundamentally want to make shifts like this. And I think that they're doing really beautiful things to lower ESG and move their energy profile to renewables. And programs like this will be very helpful to them. Just a long road. The second model are places like KISO or NISO or NISO or MISO, you know, where we have an, uh, uh, an ISO overlaying a certain region and an energy market. So in that energy market, there are opportunities where you can go in there and you can install batteries and install solar and you can interact at a slightly higher level. You can actually interact at the market level. And as long as you are maintaining interconnection standards and as long as you're doing things that don't hurt the customer on their rate tariff, you can do some really interesting things at the market level that generate additional revenue and support the grid at a higher level. And the individual IOU utilities never had to say yes. They never had to plan for it. It just becomes another asset that they have at their disposal. And I think that's a great win-win. So that's kind of the second model. So we spend a lot of time working in those regions, trying to understand how to open those up, how to interact, how to work with utilities to, to be an asset to them and not a detractor from their rate base, which is a, a really important thing to, to get out there. And then kind of your third model is... Um, you know, fully liberalized market like we have in Europe. So in Europe, you literally can get your energy from anywhere. You can choose any provider you want. You can use any technology you want as long as you're connecting to the grid in a safe way. You're totally free to go out there and figure out what rate plans and what energy is best for your lifestyle. So in the U.S., we're really focusing on how those types of markets that we've pulled from other, from other countries, other regions might apply to the U.S., and how we work with partners, whether they be EPC, solar partners, utilities, builders, developers, to, to expand those markets and speed adoption in, in places where we can action today. Thank you. So I love that you outlined those three areas, the utilities, helping them modify their thinking around low controls and uh, more consumer-sided assets, places like the ISO market, which serves as inter-market nodes for uh, negotiating and trading power. And then the European style fully deregulated. Uh, I have questions around, uh, I guess, around both of them. With the ISO model, this is similar to what Sunron and others are, are working on in uh, PJM and other territories, PJM being a, a, one, of the, one of the regional operators, like you're mentioning. It seems to me like that model positions entities like Shell, Sunrun, and others as virtual utilities, right? So competing against the, the first category, but at the regional or super regional level. I'm curious if that is the if that's the end game for asset owners or IPPs to actually own a, a fleet of storage. If that's going to be in the home, and uh, you know, it's a little bit of a two pronged question. The question is kind of like, is that the end game to for Sunrun and others to kind of have this? virtual utility model where they're actually engaged in um, selling electricity in the market, not just to the end consumer. Um, and also, if so, part two, that fully deregulated market, like how does that work? Where, where, how does the consumer know whether they should 
be partnered with someone like Sonnen versus doing it themselves and then engaging in a market that is someday going to come down the pike, right? Because right now, homeowners, like this is the conundrum I see. Homeowners are essentially leasing these assets to lower their utility bill, giving access to the IPP, Sunrun or others, to play the energy trading game. But there are folks that are trying to eventually, say, target the homeowner, realizing that homeowners think it's better to have it on their own balance sheet, buy the asset, um, you know, fund it through a bank loan, and ultimately someday have the power to sell it back to the utility. How do you see that interplay working out over the next five to 10 years as this really becomes possible for us? Yeah, it's an interesting landscape. Um, that's kind of a profound like a profound question. I'm sorry, I asked two questions and they're both, um, we could spend 10 minutes on each. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I, I, so, so first question, I think all the models are going to continue to, to exist, but I think what's going to really happen is the market is going to become very competitive, very nimble, and it's going to drive the cost of generating energy down, which again, ultimately is a win for everybody. And the only way that you drive the cost of generating energy down is through smart, communicative assets that are interacting with each other and talking to each other, whether that be through a market or through some software platform or something that the utility owns, but they really have to talk to each other real time. And of course, if you can do that from renewable sources, then that's a win, 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 win. You know, so we, as we move away from fossil fuels to renewable sources, a lot of the criticism around why you can or why you can't or energy transition and you hit a wall really start to be broken down by energy storage systems that are capable of that higher level of communication and interacting with the greater grid through something like a virtual power plant. So I don't think it's necessarily competition in a bad way. I think it's competition in the best way in that it helps us all participate and optimize and communicate with each other and innovate together instead of it all being kind of in this one silo. And I think that's really where the market's going to go in these ISO markets, especially, and, and will lead to nothing but good for, you know, for ratepayers and for the environment. I think that we're moving beyond, you know, a, a question I would want to have with, with you over whiskey at, at, at SPI, uh, excuse me, RE plus is around that kind of the transactions work, right? Like, I think that still is, we could have another two hour conversation on just how does the transaction work? Um, so we'll table that for a minute. Maybe I'll bring you back and we can talk specifics around it, but beyond regional players like um, Rocky Mountain Power and Green Mountain Power who have um, more than dabbled, but less than full hog, right? Gone into it. Where will we see, maybe even when, will we see virtual power plant evolve into a product that consumers accept on the level of like, you know, buying a heat pump, buying solar? Yeah, I think, I think what's key to that is going to be about understanding the actual electron movements. So right now, the world we live in, all 50 states, we'll just address the U.S., Electrons flow through the utility meter. They, they either come in or they go out. And that's all, that's all the visibility the utility can see. They have no idea how that electron was generated. Electrons that are in theory leaving the home and going back out to the grid are probably coming from solar because typically that's you know the tariff. But once it hits the grid, then you lose all accounting around it. So I think what, what's really going to have to evolve is being able to account for the source of these actual kilowatt hours where they go, how they're used, were they wasted? Did it travel a hundred miles or one mile? It's really going to come down to that and and 
And I think it's going to come down to an opening of the market where you're not just using this one meter on the front of the house to say net net, this many went in, this many went out. It's really going to be about understanding more deeply the movements inside the home and being more involved in the generation of that energy and where that generated energy went. And I think that's really going to be driven by the consumer saying, I installed this asset, you know, to your earlier point, whether it's a lease or whether it's purchased or loaned or whatever, this asset was installed, money was spent on it, whether it was Sunrun's money or Sonin's money or PayPal's money or, or um, Loan Pal's money or Susie Smith's money, money was spent to build this power plant and they want to get the most out of it. And today, a lot of the utility rate tariffs don't embrace that. They simply say, use what you can. If you export it to me, the state tells me I have to take it. I don't want it, but I'm going to take it. And if I could pay you less for it, I'm going to pay you less for it. But if they could understand the value of that electron, the source of that electron, where the electron could go better, I think that utilities would be able to embrace it better because they do, they wouldn't see that as I could have generated a three cent electron over here. I'm not going to buy your 12 cent electron here. They could do better math around it and understand how those electrons relate to each other. So where are you digging in the deepest minds for this um, for this future reality? Where would I be watching and waiting to see this happening first and therefore see it as a bellwether? And I'm learning from markets like Vermont. Where else like would I look to really see how VPP might roll out in other in other territories? Besides Europe, obviously, and you can talk about Europe as well. Yeah, Europe, Europe's gonna continue to evolve. Uh, we're a big player there. The energy grid in Australia is getting really, really interesting. Uh, so we've got a utility aspect down there that's really getting some traction. We're seeing some really good stuff with those homeowners. I think here in the US, um, we'll continue continue to see some evolution from vertically integrated utilities like a Rocky Mountain Power. Only because the market's a little bit more open, I think we're going to see a lot of traction in PJM, NISO area. A lot of really cool things being done up there around Long Island and, uh, you know, south of New York City and all that. Um, and then California. California's, for better or for worse, a canary in the coal mine, if you will, for just about anything else that happens in the United States. And and we're very interested in what's going on in California and participating in in helping people get batteries to protect themselves from wildfires and earthquakes and, you know, protect safety and security, but then also allow those assets to make them money the other 360 days a year that that the countryside isn't on fire. Are there programs in California that maybe folks don't even know about that are latent opportunities for uh, storage and virtual, virtual power plants that take hold? Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's a few state incentivized programs out there. S-CHIP comes to mind. There's a couple of things for low income, which are really, really beautiful. And some places that we're looking to participate, I think we're kind of early in the game to understand how uh, um, Sonin could interact at a virtual power plant level. But uh, yeah, California is an ever-emerging market, and I've got a lot of people keeping eyes on it. I bet you do. For those who who don't have much of a um, – of, this maybe is their first introduction to the concept of virtual power plant – where would you point them? In what direction would you point them to really be able to dig their heels in a little deeper on resources? Definitely. Um, you know, you guys have addressed it a few times on this podcast. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'd say there's some great episodes out there that, that kind of dip, dip toes into it and talk or talk about some battery chemistry, things like that, that are really important basis. Energy Sage has some information out there that I think is pretty in, important. Department of Energy has posted some interesting papers lately that kind of talk about the evolution of that 
Jiggershaw has just, you know, has, or he might still be in process uh, of, of publishing a whole series of, of talks around virtual power plants and how they're going to transform the country. You certainly talk with your, your local solar installer, give us a call, a Sonin. Uh, you know, I know, I know there's a lot of things out there that are being called virtual power plants. Uh, I'm not going to call any of them out. Some of them have longer roads than others. I certainly think ours is positioned really well to evolve as the as the grid evolves and the market evolves uh, to continue to bring maximum value to our to our customers. Any advice to installers trying to think of how this how this matters for them, how they incorporate it into their business? For installers, absolutely. Um, yeah, I would say depending on where you're at in the country, get in front of the market. There are certainly a lot of markets that still embrace net metering where solar alone still makes financial sense, but that is rapidly starting to change. That subsidy is starting to go away. States are quickly hitting this inflection point where solar penetration is starting to become a nuisance, not a, not a helper. And the only way that utilities can respond to that is to alter net metering rules. And the only way that you insulate consumers from the changes around net metering wherever you might be in the country is to couple that with something like an energy storage system where you can better harness more of the energy that you're selling on their rooftop behind the meter in the home and give those homeowners control or those residents control to use the energy the way they want to use the energy. Once you push it out to the grid, you have no control. Very interesting. And that's a great talking point as well on how to tee up, how to tee up stores generally. As you mentioned earlier, really software matters. It matters so much. Well, as we head towards home here in the conversation, I hear you saying that you you were hired by uh, Mandalay to be kind of that tech guy that would go out and find new technology. Is there any cool climate tech related technology that you've come across in the last uh, little bit that really impressed you and that you that you that I, yeah I can learn from you on? Yeah, there's a there's a couple things that really. There's a few things that really tickle me. My favorite, and I've been tracking this for years, it's one of my favorite technologies out there, is electro-adaptive tent. So we want houses with lots of light. We want houses with lots of windows. But the best windows on the planet are maybe an R4, R5 insulative value, whereas a wall can be 40 or 50 or 60. So they're, they're gaping holes in our, in our barriers and a lot of that comes from, you know, the, the, the radiant heat and the UV heat that we can that, that come through these windows. And there's been some really cool technology around electro-adaptive tents where they start out really dim when there's not direct sunlight. And then as they get more sunlight on them, so, you know, more heat on them, they actually will grow darker and reject more of that heat and, and, and improve their resistive value. Who's doing a good job of that? Oh, gosh. Um I was tracking some labs like up in Colorado that were doing some stuff at schools, but I don't know that it's actually hit large scale commercial and I'm waiting because uh, I think that's rad. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's a guy who I worked for at Trina. He went to a company. I can't remember the name of it in the Bay area that does exactly this. And it's, it's so interesting. It's also, it kind of gets into that edge case of like both electro adaptive and uh, the new kinds of semiconductor materials that were that we're able to create that are, that are solar reactive, right? Where we're going to be able to not only tint the window, but the film itself is a form of SIGs or some other that can pick up the sunlight and all the fenestration, all the glass and all these tall buildings can become electric generators and we can hook them all to, 
to batteries and sell it back to, to the grid. That's right. That's right. I think that's an incredible space because you look at buildings like that, like high rises. And when you look at the density of people and the density of energy being used in them versus the rooftop space that you could put solar on, it's a losing equation. But if you could turn all that fenestration into generating and you can harness that fenestration in a way that the that the building uses less energy because it's rejecting more heat. I, yeah, I mean, that's, it's a huge opportunity. I think it, there's a really, it'd be a really difficult case for any, any form of retrofit, just given the complexity of the fenestration of most of these buildings to begin with. But um, I could see in new construction at some point that being like 50 years from now, my kids, kids, um, that being sort of mandated, right? Because the technology exists totally. and why ignore it? Totally. Well, Jeff, of the many, many ways that we could learn, I find that um, we learn often through the wisdom written down in the form of books. I'd love to know if there are any particular books that you have read that have changed the way that you think about life or business that you would like to pass on as wisdom and knowledge to others. Um, yeah, you know, I do a lot of, I do a lot of self-work. Um, <laughs> what does that mean? Like a lot of uh, I'm, personal I'm, development stuff? I, I, Personal development. I, I'm a huge fan fan of Malcolm Gladwell. Um, I've read everything he wrote. I love understanding the world around us and how we interact with people and how we perceive things. It's done a lot for me around really understanding these win win scenarios and how how we can all achieve together and how we don't have to stand on the backs of other people to get other to get to places. Um, he's really shaped the way I approach business in life. I can't imagine um, there are folks that haven't read Gladwell in any form, but is there anything that stands out for you as a particular book that if somebody said, I haven't read any Gladwell, what should I start with? I would definitely say what the dog saw. I think that's the title of it. Such a powerful read on perception. It was, yeah, it was, I did not start there. I wish I had started there, but, uh, you can't go wrong with Gladwell. I love that. That's such a great, uh, I, was, I was just like, I hope he's going to say what the dog saw. So I'm glad that we're on the same page there. That's good. Uh, my, my little social cred- credibility validation for you, Jeff. <laughs> I'm sure that folks are going to want to reach out to you and ask a, a, a bunch more questions that it didn't occur to me to ask or that time just doesn't allow. How do you like to be found? Where can folks reach out and, and connect with you? Uh, definitely LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. Start there. I, I, you can get me on the email from there. Very cool. So. Make, uh, when you when you reach out to connect with Jeff on LinkedIn, leave a message. Click on the button that says customize invite so that you can tell him why he should accept your your outreach um, or send him an sure, in-mail the way, sure. that's, the way that so many of us do. Uh, how can the Suncast audience help, Jeff? Where do, you, where do you think we can lean in with you? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think just continuing to understand what virtual power plants can do, uh, continuing to put pressure on the communities to innovate and, and, and reach out to companies that are trying to help them innovate. Um, you know, break down those barriers, ask for what it is that they want, which is energy independence, lower energy costs, lower dependency on fossil fuels, and then offer them a possible, you know, a possible outlet. You know, I, I don't love problem identifiers. I love people who identify a problem and say, and here's an idea I have to solve it. It doesn't have to be the idea, but the fact that you were thinking about an idea means that you're passionate about it to the level that you're like, oh, I hate traffic, but man, I hate traffic. But if I did this, I could make traffic better. I hate that I have to, or like Elon, I hate that I have to drive through this traffic at this time of day. <laughs> I'll come up with another solution altogether. Right. 
Well, let's end today, as we always do, Jeff, with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening? And I imagine I can think of a handful of answers here, but what do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? And that could be time scale or um, production scale. What's in your crystal ball? Yeah, I really see, I see us reaching a point in the market, maybe sooner than a lot of people think, where we see a future where we really can shift to renewables as a base load in the U.S. in the U.S. market. I really do. Yep. To be continued on our next discussion. <laughs> All right. Jeff Farrell is vice president of virtual power plants and the commercial industrial business, Sonnen, a division of Shell. And he is one of the foremost experts on how virtual power plants are being commercialized, not only here, but around the world. Thank you for joining us on Suncast. Look forward to having you back. Thank you for having me. I'd love to come back. Well, that's another wrap on today's practical insights into this solar warrior's journey. What did you learn? I'd love to hear your feedback since I know you're already hopping online. Would you mind sharing this episode as well with someone on LinkedIn? We're eager to learn how this episode resonated with you. Who do you think needs to hear this story today? You can pop over to LinkedIn and find the post that we've made about this episode. I'd love it if you would tag someone that you think should be listening to this episode and leave Jeff a little love note there in the comments, if you will. I hope that you will tune in again next week as we'll be interviewing Kimberly Sentara from Terra Pro Solutions and we'll continue to deliver on our RE Plus Power Up Media Zone replays with insightful content on what's trending and what's hot in the industry. You won't want to miss it. If you're eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion and all the research I did to prepare for this interview with Jeff, along with the social media links for he and his company, the book recommendations, and more over at mysuncast.com. We make it really easy to find the show notes page right there. And one more thing, just a reminder that maybe the single kindest thing you could do is leave us a five-star rating and enthusiastic review in whatever podcast player you are using. And to keep it really simple, you can go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. It takes about three minutes and really, really moves the needle to help others find the show. If you have joined us in our resource labs, you are well aware of how deep the conversation has gotten and you've enjoyed some of our live conversations inside of our Discord channel. And if you're curious, what the heck is this? How has Suncast evolved uh, the family of listeners into something that is more of a conversation rather than a presentation of thoughts and ideas? Well, you could go to mysuncast.com forward slash community and join us. See for yourself. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. And I'd like to thank once again, uh, finally here, our sponsors who help make this content free to you. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also, of course, where you could learn how to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they do. Remember, you are what you listen to. Hope to see you on the inside of Resource Labs. In the meantime, thanks for showing up again, Solar Warrior. It is half the battle. <laughs>